Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss a well-known politician who lost his life to the COVID uh, pandemic, and then all the new news out of John Ortberg's church. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Lots of good conversation going on there today. Find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Grateful for those of you who do that. Ian, it's Thursday. How are you today, man? Just because it's Thursday. I just like how you set that up first. Like if if people talk to each other like that in person, the world would be insane. Brian, hey, it's Thursday. It's Thursday. How are you? <laughs> why are you? Why are you shouting at me? I'm I'm uh, I'm good, sir. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm clearly energized today, so you know. Clearly, uh, I, I I feel like I uh, I teased you before you left for vacation, and I want to make sure that I do it. I want to read our most recent review on the podcast. How's that sound? I would, uh, I mean, it ruined my vacation just waiting for it. So I mean, you I'm have the technology to check for yourself, Brian. You could have just <laughs> looked. But uh, this is from our friend Logan Wentz. He said, I appreciate the opportunity to listen in to meaningful conversations that don't shy away from current events. How about that? Thanks, Logan. We appreciate you listening and taking the time to review. That means a lot. That does mean a lot. And uh, I'm, I'm in a much better mood today. But last night... Uh, my sanctification, it was it was being tested as I sat for an hour and a half in a T-Mobile store after they told me, oh, it'll be 20 minutes. Oh. And, uh, you know, when you get like caught, like it gets far enough into something you can't leave, but you're not sure when they're going to let you leave. Oh, my 100%. gosh, it was awful. It was so <laughs> bad. I got home and I told my wife, that is literally one of the worst two hours I've ever spent in my life. <laughs> wow, you have lived a charmed life, Brian. That, that oh, just absolute torture. Do you think that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he was talking about sanctification? So, I will grant you, it, it might have been recency bias, because I'm sure there's been worse, but uh, it, was, uh, it was nonetheless no fun. So uh, anyway, we're glad that you're joining us today, and lots of good things to talk about. Again, find these articles at the Facebook page, lots of good conversations going on there. So I did want to start with uh, a story that uh, just broke this morning. Uh, that is, I don't know, it, it, not only is it sad, it just kind of uh, struck me as I, I, I was surprised how much uh, I was impacted by it and wanted to read more. It says former GOP presidential candidate Herman Cain uh, died today at the age of 74. So he's uh, the former Republican presidential candidate and also the former CEO of a major pizza chain uh, who went on to become an ardent supporter of President Trump. He died of complications from the coronavirus uh, today, he was 74. Uh, he had been ill for, with the virus for several weeks, and it's not clear when or where he was infected, uh, but he was hospitalized less than two weeks after attending uh, President Trump's campaign rally in Tulsa. He had been the co-chair of Black Voices uh, for Trump. And so you might remember after the Tulsa rally, he tweeted, Herman Cain tweeted a picture with multiple other people. Uh, saying how much fun he was having at the rally and clearly with no masks. And so we will never know if that's where he got COVID-19, but it's certainly a possibility. And so a couple different things about this. Uh, one is, and, and the biggest thing is just the tragedy. It's sad. It's a reminder that we are in the midst of a pandemic that is killing people. Uh, and Herman Cain 
sadly being one of those people. But I think, Ian, that's what struck me. I, I Sometimes you lose sight of the number, right? 150,000 people have died now. Uh, sometimes for me, the number becomes numbing and it almost loses its shock value. And that when somebody that I've heard of or know, and I know I don't know Herman Cain, but just to see that, uh, it kind of caused me to kind of take a step back today. I, I don't know why it affected me, but it really did when I saw that Herman Cain died specifically from the coronavirus. Well, I know you just said that you don't know why, but I kind of want to ask why. why. Why do you think that is? I think it's when faces get put to the numbers for me. I think it's, uh, it, it, and it's not just famous people. I did a week or two ago, clicked on a link in which it was just telling the stories of some people who had died and it completely changed in that moment. And then you get kind of numb again. Again, I have CNN on right next to me right now and they literally have the number of dead up the entire day. It's just up there and you could become really numb to it. But I've told you before, and I'm, I feel very fortunate for this. I don't have anybody close to me personally who has died. And so it can become very numbing, like, okay, 150,000 people, I, you know, I can't get my mind around it. But to read people's stories and to have heard of them before, I think it just uh, the humanity of it. And then that then reminds you, yeah, you know what? The virus, Republican, Democrat, uh, rich, poor, like it, it isn't uh, just because we want to believe that, you know, maybe some people want to believe the virus isn't a big deal. The virus is going to uh, it, it doesn't care what you think about it. And so this was just another reminder for me. I, that's what I think it is. I think it's that the number becomes numbing for me. What, what if we come to find out that the virus really did care what we think about it? Like it's a really sensitive, <laughs> it's a really sensitive virus and its feelings are hurt. And that's why, that's why we're dealing with all this. Maybe, I, I, I'm maybe. good with it. I'm good with that. That, that virus's <laughs> feelings being hurt. I, I, I want to take a, a strange angle on that actually, because I feel like in preaching, which is something that you and I do frequently, yep. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, that didn't really resonate until I heard the story, until I saw faces and narrative kind of put to it. And yet, unfortunately, it feels like a lot of preaching is the transmission of data. Don't, don't you find that to be true? Like people old and young, black and white, like it feels like that's a universal that we all share. Like, yeah, a story like resonates, though, even if it's something tragic, like the death of someone due to a virus. And it is interesting to me that predominantly the vast majority of our sermonizing still is a lot of transmission of information right. isn't that bizarre that we know stories are the things that kind of like grip our hearts and move us you know both to joy and sorrow and yet it feels like a lot of our modern sermons kind of uh kind of miss that element yeah i totally agree with you because i uh i think of the sermon or the speakers that i find most compelling and they're wonderful storytellers both preachers and just you know podcasts whatever else it might be um they are uh, phenomenal storytellers. And so I uh, did want to start with this. And then also, this is just an aside. Uh, again, these things don't shouldn't surprise us. But man, I was on Twitter today reading about Herman Cain. I made the mistake of clicking on the hashtag just to kind of see the stories, right, that were coming out. And uh, let's just say there were some prominent people taking some glee in the death of Herman Cain, because he was a supporter of Trump. Mm. He didn't wear a mask, all this stuff. And I just it just makes me really mad. And I know it happens on both sides of the aisle, both sides of these debates. And that's kind of the nature of Twitter. But I guess I just wanted to bring that up to say, if you're somebody out there who does that kind of shame on you, like that's not the time. And, and it just really bothered me. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know if those things bother you. You're numb to them or, or whatever else it might be. <laughs> what kind of monster would I be if it didn't, <laughs> didn't bother me at all? I'm like, no, I'm fine with it. <laughs> it is, it is uh, unfortunate. <laughs> 
because and I, and I do want to celebrate the people that don't do it, but it feels like we're so used to everyone body slamming everyone else all the time that when someone comes out, especially when it's someone on the other side of the aisle and they're even like remotely decent about the deceased, there's like a standing ovation. And again, yeah. let's celebrate the good. But I look at that and I think, I don't know that that's standing ovation worthy. It's like uh, decent. It's like a decent thing to do. And that, you know, it's not a, which again, maybe, maybe I'm being too cynical there. We should celebrate the good wherever we see it. But yeah, it is, it is heartbreaking. I think we see this. Unfortunately, I don't think Christians are all that better at it online either. I, the, the, I'm thinking of multiple cases in the last few years where somebody who clearly was quote unquote, like, outside the church and like an outright celebration of their passing. That to me, I think there's some verses against that. Now that I think about it. <laughs> it's a good segue later in the show, we're going to discuss an article literally entitled, if you've got Jesus in your prof in your profile, don't be nasty in your timeline. So yes, I look yes. forward to that conversation. So you, we've been starting a lot of these shows talking about COVID-19, but a lot of times with stats or where we're at. So I thought we would just uh, talk about uh, the humanity of it a little bit more. Uh, well, coming up next, we're going to have the opportunity to talk to a professor from Judson University, Rob Curry, uh, about a new children's book that he has just put out. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, we are really excited to be joined on the phone by Rob Curry. He's the author of Hunger Winter, a World War II novel. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure. I'm a regular listener. It's, it's fun to be on the show. So my day job is teaching psychology at Judson University, but on the side, I'm also an author. This is my third book. This is my first foray into the fiction realm, my first book for kids. So it's been a pretty interesting experience. Wow. Well, and you were you were actually my professor when I was at Judson University, and uh, I'll try not to spill the beans on the entire class, but you're the first professor that taught us Bible verses via song, songs that I still remember, by the way. Maybe that'll come up <laughs> a little later in the segment, but I imagine people might be wondering, so what's the story of how you came to write this book in the first place? So I find it funny when, when people say such and such an event was a God thing, because they think yeah. all of life has got a God thing. Sometimes he pulls mm -hmm. back the curtain to let us see. But I want to do give glory to God. My son came home from junior high with a story he dashed off in study hall. Two pages off the top of his head, but it's pretty good. I'd published two books at that point. And I said, hey, just for fun, not for publication, let's write a story together. We'll take it to Kinko's and run it off. Oh, yeah, that'd be great, Dad. So I said, I'll do the first chapter. You can do the subject. Okay, Dad, sure, sure, sure. A month later when I'd finished, he was more interested in being a teenager than writing a book. <laughs> but I was hooked on the on it, and I I find that's often how God guides. He asks us to do a little thing with mm. a bigger thing in mind for later on. But uh, the the takeaway, if I could turn pastoral, I'm being interviewed by two pastors. Yeah. Whatever God puts in front of us to do with energy and enthusiasm, even if it seems like a little thing and it mm. doesn't seem important, because we usually have no idea which of those little things He will turn into something bigger or better or different, not fame and fortune, but glory to God and purpose mm. in our lives. I love that. Um, so your, your book, it focuses on the Dutch experience of World War II. Uh, wondering what was unique about that experience? And also, how did you make that decision that that was the focus you wanted to make of this book? Sure. So I picked that era because my son started the story. That's kind of got me 
going down oh, the path. But what was unique, World War II is so complicated, so many niches and, and sub-stories and so on. The Dutch experience was unusual because after the invasion, the Nazis more or less said, hey, guys, sorry about the invasion. I know we bombed the daylights out of Rotterdam, but we didn't really mean anything by it. You guys are <laughs> our friends, right? You know, there are a lot of Germans living in, in Netherlands. Uh, the German soldiers were coached to be very polite to Dutch shopkeepers. They mm. spent their money there. And at first, it seemed like to the Dutch, like, you know what? We can, we can make do with this. It's not so bad. As mm. opposed to when they invoted, invaded Poland or France, there was no, no pretense of friendliness on the part of the Nazis. Oh, that's interesting. Now, I've actually heard a number of people compare COVID-19 to World War II in a couple of different mm -hmm. ways. What, mm -hmm. What's your take on that? So uh, we won't really be able to make the full comparison until COVID's done. Do I sound like right. an academic now? <laughs> uh, yeah. There's some similarities, you know, worldwide impact. A difficult adversary. Uh, from I've lived COVID. I've only studied World War II. I think World War mm -hmm. II was a much more engrossing. I mean, it went from 1939 to 1945. I don't think COVID's going to last that long. I hope. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. But there, there are some similarities. I can see why it would come up. Hmm. Yeah. So two very famous people. It's uh, and I didn't realize this uh, until we read your notes that Anne Frank and Corey Tenboom are two of the most famous Dutch figures from World War II. Just wondering how they fit into your book and into all of this that you're writing about. Sure. Sure. So Corey Tenboom was captured in February of 1944. Anne Frank in August of 44. In September, the Germans cut off food and fuel to squash the resistance. That began what the Dutch call the hunger winter. So after Anne is captured, the world knows very little about civilian life in the Netherlands. And so mm -hmm. that's where my story picks up. It's, it's fictional, but it's based on a lot of facts. The Germans cut off food and fuel. As a result, 20,000 Dutch civilians died of hunger or else they froze to death. People would be walking along the side of the road and just give up. Um, yeah. I interviewed some of the survivors, and one man wow. told the story. He was a boy. They had a farm, so they had enough food. People would come and trade goods for food. So here comes somebody, and the farmers go, here you go, have a bowl of soup. He had a couple of bites of soup, put his head down, and just died right there at the table, right in front of the family. Wow. And so they sent food home with his, with the, with his family. But uh, that's how it fits in with uh, Anne Frank and um, Corey Tim Boom. Interesting. So why do you think people are still so fascinated with World War II so many years later? I think it's a, a story where we have a clear sense of right and wrong, and it matters. There's something deep in, our, in human nature that, that matters. I also think, and social media illustrates this, we get a thrill out of nailing somebody who's done wrong. I've, mm. I've, I've done this. I'll spot a minor factual error. And with glee, I leap to my keyboard and point mm. out the, not always gracefully, uh, the mm. error of that person's uh, thinking. But there is a, a sense in us, despite what society says about right and wrong being, it's all just great. It's not. There is right and there is wrong. And you're right, uh, World War II, there are many more books and movies and so on than, say, Civil War, Vietnam War, World War I. I think it's because it's that clear sense of right and wrong. Mm. 
All right. You made a fascinating statement here. It says, in a strange way, Christians could learn powerful lessons about evangelism from how the Nazis operated. Uh, could you explain that? I, I'm fascinated to hear your uh, what you think about that. Yeah. So first of all, I don't defend anything that the Nazis did. But when I think of Nazi interrogation, most people think of Gestapo torture, and all of that is true and more. But the Luftwaffe operated very differently. They actually used kindness to get secrets. Uh, in one case, oh, you you poor you poor uh, captured pilots. Instead of standing in the sun, why don't you stand over here or sit down over here in the shade? Uh, you're you're a captured pilot. Wouldn't you join some of our German officers? They're going to be in club. We're going to have you know some refreshments. And just promise me you won't try to escape when you go from point A to point B. It's what we call friendship evangelism in the church, really. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was so powerful that no one was able to resist revealing secrets, or virtually no one. And many mm-hmm. of the American pilots after the war sought out their interrogator to continue the friendship. Wow. That's wild. All right. I, w- I want to throw you a curveball that's not actually about the book. I alluded to it earlier. You were my psychology professor when I was at Judson University. I honestly think that you're one of the kindest educators that I've ever had personally. And a unique aspect of that class is that you taught us Bible verses via song. And I remember being 19 thinking, this is a little wacky. And now <laughs> as a 37-year-old, I still sing those songs. Like those things are still kind of stuck in my brain somewhere. Where did that idea come from? And why, why do you think that's important? I had a high school teacher that impressed Proverbs on me. Hmm. And I had students starting to memorize and they bombed in the first test. And so before the second test, I put melodies and they aced it. Wow. I want to loop, loop back. We talked about Corey Ten Boom. His story is awesome. I'm very pleased to say that the Corey Ten Boom House Foundation has endorsed my book. The director mm-hmm. said that he would love to encourage everyone to read the book. That just quickly to set up, this is a book for kids. A lot of mm-hmm. adults are lagging too, but kids grades four through eight. Thirteen-year-old Dirk, his father goes out to fight with the resistance. His mom dies. He's the man in the house. His older sister gets captured by the Gestapo. So in the middle of the night, he realizes he has to leave home right then. So he leaves mm-hmm. home with his pockets stuffed with food, his little sister asleep in his arms, and a deep secret, in, sorry, uh, a dark secret in his heart. So it's a, it's a, it's a thriller, really, a World War II thriller. Lots and lots of action, but it's mm-hmm. based on lots of historical fact. I read dozens of books. I spent three weeks in the Netherlands. I interviewed survivors. One man told me his dad was arrested because he was hiding an Allied pilot. I know we're almost out of time. I'll be brief. And the dad said, "Well, I'm not going to tell you. If I hand over the pilot, you're going to kill me anyway." A minister found out, talked to the pilot. The pilot surrendered himself, and the father lived. Wow. Wow. That other voice you're hearing is Rob Curry. Rob, uh, he says his day job is a professor at Judson University, but he is also the author of Hunger Winter, a World War II novel that we would encourage you to pick up. Where can they get that, Rob? Amazon? Where else could uh, people pick that up? Everywhere. 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 All kinds of online booksellers I've never heard of have it. (laughs) That's awesome. A lot of local libraries have it, too. That's outstanding. That's called A Hunger Winter, a World War II novel by Rob Curry. Rob, we really appreciate this. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Absolutely. Brother. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, remember, you can find us online at 1160hope.com. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We're about to discuss an article that's getting some traction over there on the Facebook page. You're welcome to go there and weigh in. 
Also, our podcast, you can find our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review, uh, then unsubscribe, resubscribe, rate it again, and review it again. I think that's legal, right? (laughs) I don't mind it. Yeah, sure. If you're bored one night, just keep doing that. So I think I've given the example of that's like Cameron with Ferris trying to drive his dad's car in reverse to take the miles off. I think that's the same logic. That is a great movie, by the way, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I will tell you, uh, uh, probably my kids are not old enough, and I learned that one the hard way. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's some uh, not PG material in that. Yeah, I've just been reminded by trying to show my kids movies of what PG meant in the 80s versus uh-huh. that. That's and right. uh, I learned that the hard way a couple times now. <laughs> you should use VidAngel, Brian, and Good solve, point. Solve, that, Good. solve that problem right away. Good point. So. Uh, anyway, we are glad that you're joining us today. A hard story uh, in the evangelical world, the story of John Ortberg uh, and his church, Menlo Church. He has had to resign. I'm wondering, uh, Ian, we've got the story at Christianity Today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, more about what's going on at Menlo Church and John Ortberg? Yeah, man, I it brings me no joy to really talk about this story. It's really rough, and there's been elements that have like slowly kind of come to light. It seems like over the past, what has it been? Probably two months or three months, at least to our ears, you know, on our radar, this has been something that slowly, but surely I've seen more and more. And so it says John Ortberg, popular Christian author and speaker has resigned as pastor of Menlo church, a mega church congregation outside of San Francisco. His resignation is effective Sunday, August 2nd. I have considered my 17 years as pastor here to be the greatest joy I've had in ministry. Ortberg said in a statement, but this has been a difficult time for parents, volunteers, staff, and others. And I believe that the unity needed for Menlo to flourish will be best served by my leaving. In November, Orberg was placed on leave after Menlo Church elders learned he allowed a volunteer who had admitted being attracted to children to work with kids at the church and in the community. Orberg had first learned of the volunteer's admission in July 2018. He did not inform other church leaders or the youth sports team that the uh, volunteer coached. Church leaders did not learn of his actions until Daniel uh, Lavery, Ortberg's son, sent an email blowing the whistle. The elder uh, Ortberg returned to the pulpit this spring after the elders hired a lawyer to conduct an inquiry into the matter, but controversy at the church flared up again after uh, Lavery revealed the volunteer in question was his younger brother and the pastor's Mm. youngest son, a fact that had been withheld from the congregation. Lavery Former friends of the Orberg family and other critics of the decision have called for the pastor to step down. So there's so many obvious reasons that this story is heartbreaking and doesn't bring either of us joy to talk about. But I think it's a really I think it's a really important conversation for us to have. Yeah, I think uh, it's funny you put it that way, because my first thought was like, I don't even want to talk about these anymore. Like it feels um, I, you know, I think. Not that this necessarily matters, but I love reading John Ortberg books. I've always had great respect mm. for John Ortberg. And so uh, and I just think uh, in the uh, you know 18 months or so that you and I have done the show, the number of stories we've had to do about pastors um, kind of, you know, uh, doing something to break the trust uh, and end up losing their jobs. And it never comes with joy. But I do think we have both thought it's important to have these conversations and it's important to do this. And um you know, once again, uh, the conversation here in the John Ortberg part is no one is suggesting that he did anything, you know, to a kid or whatever else, but it's constantly this withholding of information. And it's, but it's also, you know, there's so much complexity in this because it's his family 
Uh, it's his child who uh, kind of uh, blew the whistle on the other child. You know, you can just picture how messy and heartbreaking this is for the family. But I do think the number of these stories that we've done, you do start to see a pattern over time uh, that concealing information, especially when it deals with the safety of children, is just a non-negotiable. That can't happen. Uh, and this it feels like so often when we do these stories, it is centered around the, uh, uh, we're going to try to slide this under the rug a little bit, or we're going to deal with this on our own uh, instead of saying, hey, we've got to protect the most vulnerable here. And so I do think that's one of the, excuse me, one of the important reasons for talking about these things, because I just don't think that people in leadership can ever say, hey, we're going to try to conceal this from the elders. We're going to try to conceal this from the congregation uh, in, for whatever reason. And again, this is yet another example of that. Yeah, what he says here, he says, however, for my part, I did not balance my responsibilities as a father with my responsibilities as a leader. I think mm -hmm. that is that's a distillation of a struggle that a lot of pastors have in a number of different ways. Probably not even just pastors, probably in general, just parents, you know, regardless of their work exposure or experience or position like this, this balance. I mean, he said just before that extensive conversations I had with my youngest son gave me no evidence of risk or harm and feedback from others about his impact was consistently positive. Uh, and yet I think anytime that you're harboring secrecy in an environment where you're the one at the top of the pyramid, that's, that's always dangerous. We've seen a lot of that, unfortunately, not just in Chicago land, but across the country. And, and they often look very different. You know, it's been curious to see, at least from the vantage point, as a local church pastor, the the scandals uh, run the gamut, I think, of what category you would put them in, thinking all the way back to even, you know, Driscoll or right. Bell or any of those, I mean, any of these stories, they, they look very, very different. Um, but this one, this one's hard. And it's, I know that it's, there's probably all sorts of tension within the Orpah family. And I, right. I mean, I do just want to say that, you know, we are praying for them and the church and anyone affected and anyone who's going to have to step into like providing some healing in this context. Right. That's got to be just an unbelievable challenge and burden. And I don't know, man, I, this kind these, these kinds of stories just break my heart. They do. And I, I'll ask you this question kind of to close out this and taking it away from Ortberg, but just kind of the totality of these stories, a lot of big churches, big, well-known um, pastors. Uh, does it leave you discouraged about the church or is it like, you know what, these are these are going to happen within a church? You know, how does it leave you viewing evangelical church as a whole? Yeah, I think we had a guest a couple of weeks ago who was ultimately, you know, his his point, which I thought was a good one, was my hope isn't in the behavior of people. It does mm -hmm. discourage. I think you can have discouragement and hope in the same space, though, to be honest. Like when when I see people and it, it's not even just in leadership, you know, we've talked before about sometimes it can be discouraging even when you see people from your church and the way they conduct themselves online. And you think, right. oh, man. I know that your heart is better than that. Why are you, why are you spewing this vitriol or, or whatever it is? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a bull fan for me. It's, I'm not hopeless, but it is most certainly discouraging and heartbreaking. And it, it, in a strange way, it sort of impassions me to an even greater resolve about the types of accountability and mm. structures of accountability and not just like handshake agreements, but like, like how much overhaul is still needed in the church world, big and small. I don't think this is just a mega thing. 
Uh, I don't even think it's just like a West East Coast thing. I don't think it I mean, it transcends denominations, obviously. So like there is there's real need for a, a reform in a, in a big way, I think, to to not let stuff like this happen again and uh, or at least a minute. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Still hopeful, but certainly discouraged. That's well put. I would uh, encourage you to read this article if you want some of the more background, but be praying for Menlo Church, uh, also for the Ortberg family and for all involved. Uh, it's a hard story, but one that we feel like it needs to be discussed. Well, coming up next, an article out of Religion News. If you've got Jesus in your profile, don't be nasty on your timeline. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. You know where you can find us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. We do appreciate those who listen uh, via the podcast. Via? 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 Mm. Via. Which one are we going with? What do you think? Okay, so i probably say via, but I'm also the kind of guy that says data instead of data, so I'm not sure I can be trusted. Because yeah, I think I'd go anyone who listens via the podcast. I think I'd go via as well. I think. I think. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's not what I said. I said via. I'm good point. <laughs> I was listening. I don't know why you're I said like, it. Well. Like, agreed. I also say via. You're like, no, that's not. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> maybe I got to go to back. I have to go back to claiming vacation. Mine. I told you earlier. I'm I'm past vacation. Mine. Maybe maybe I need to claim it again. <laughs> it's too too late for that. You're on the record. I am. I am. What well, religion news? Daniel Darling. Uh, he wrote this article. I love the headline. If you've got Jesus in your profile, don't be nasty on your timeline. Here's how he writes. Uh, quote, follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus myself. I normally like to see those words on someone's Twitter profile. Lately, however, I'm reluctant to scroll down for fear that this same follower has cussed out a politician on the social media platform or tweeted nasty things at a person they disagree with. How can people who claim Jesus as Lord act so mean? First, we often think that because we're fighting for the right things, justice, truth, righteousness, that it doesn't matter how we say what we say. The Apostle Peter, no stranger to impulsive talk, has a tip for us. He urged first century believers to, quote, have an answer for everyone for the hope that lies within you, but to do this with gentleness and kindness. In other words, civility and courage are not enemies, but friends. The loudest person in the room or online is not necessarily the most courageous. So he's going to go through a couple more. Uh, But what do you think about that first one? Because, well, let's back up. Uh, How many times do you feel like you've seen in someone's Twitter handle or something follower of Jesus and then been just completely deflated by what they say? I've I've lost track at this point. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think about his first part there? gentleness and kindness. I like that phrase, civility and courage are not enemies, uh, but friends. If we if we grasp that, that would probably change the way that we interact with people, uh, not just in person, but online as well. Yeah, I think it's the same passage too, where he talks about conversations being seasoned with salt, right? Which mm-hmm. to like our modern sensibilities maybe seems confusing because like nowadays, if you say someone's salty, it usually means like mean, right? Like, man, they're That's actually salty. But in like rabbinic language, it talked all about like saltiness being like the kind of flavor. Like the, I, I found that to be a helpful way to think about my online interactions. What kind of flavor am I bringing to this conversation? Is it like bitter and sour or is it, you know, like when he talks about gentleness and kindness, civility and courage. Like I think that those are things that we all in theory want to model, 
but I do think he's right. I think we often, because we feel like we're right, we justify the methodology, which in a lot of ways is probably, I think that's MLK who says, man, the, uh, the means we use must be as righteous as the ends we seek. And mm. when we sort of justify, well, yeah, I'm an awful person, but I'm right. You're like, gosh, you take that approach and then slap Jesus on top of it. And I think you get all sorts of problems. I know so many times have I not only just seen someone's a follower of Jesus that they put it in their Twitter uh, handle or their profile, uh, but so many times I've seen, you know, whether it be reporters or people I know from my past or whatever, who will screenshot somebody's profile, who's been like swearing at them and mean and like circle it and be like, oh, you know, good representation. And you're just like, oh, man, right, that's right. Uh, so that was the first one. Second, he says, we go off the rails online because we forget the humanity of the person on the other end of the tweet. Hmm. That person we are calling out or punching at rhetorically is not a mere avatar to be crushed, but a person made in the image of God. Those with whom we disagree are not the sum total of their opinions. Right. James, Jesus's brother and another leader in the first century church, urges us to consider the imago day of the other before we unleash a verbal uh, assault. I feel like if we got better uh, collectively at that paragraph, living that out, it would transform so much, uh, including our dialogue on Facebook and on Twitter. I think you're right. Uh, I want to think you're right, at least. I do think people, Christians in particular, that's what we're talking about. I think right. at some level, some base level, we understand this is an image bear. And yet for some reason, when we come to the fork in the road, we we still choose vitriol instead of kindness. And I think, I think we honestly sometimes think it's just more effective. I won't get through to this person using kindness. So I have to be mean, not just aggressive. I think it's okay to be aggressive. One of our like conflict norms at, uh, at community is argue like you're right. Listen, like you're wrong. And I think that's, I think that's really important. I think sort of like what James says, right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Doesn't say don't speak. Like it's okay to feel passionate about something and to even be, you know, energized by it. But I think when we veer into this this denigrating, it's almost, I mean, it's almost blasphemous to be honest. The way that we treat other people, fully recognizing that we know they're an image bearer of God and yet still justify the way that we speak. It's like it's like we're saying as long as I'm, as long as what I'm saying is true, it doesn't really matter the packaging. It's like, yeah, Jesus doesn't just simply say what to say. He also says how we're to say it, how we're to live, and and to like divorce the two. I think is a is a real issue, especially online. Yeah, that's a really good line, man. Argue like you're right, but listen like you're wrong. Was that what it was? Uh huh. Yep. That's, yeah. We we uh, we work with the best business business workplace, and when one of the things that showed up as a weakness was conflict, so we brought in. Uh, Patrick Lencioni's group, the table group. And we did like a one day conflict workshop with all of our staff. And that was one of the things that came out of it. And it was really helpful. That is a good line. I'm going to think about that one for a while. The next one, he says, third, we often abandon kindness because politics has replaced religion as the primary driver of our discourse. We may have Jesus in the bio, but it's the Republican or Democratic Party that is really in our hearts. We got to stop there and just mull that one over because I do think when it turns to politics, online, it almost becomes, that's when the vitriol gets turned up and people almost treat it like a game. Like that's how yeah, the kind of right. the divorcing of people, but man, that, that line there, we may have Jesus in the bio, but it's Republican or democratic party. That's really in our hearts. Uh, that, uh, that goes right to the heart of the idol, uh, of the idol worship of our day. 
Yeah, I think the treating it like a game is a keen insight, too, because I think it's much easier to treat those interactions like they're a game when they're happening digitally. Like the stuff that we say even to characters in a movie, right? Like think about sometimes the awful stuff that people will say or to the coach when you're just watching from your living room. Uh, You would never say that to a person's face. I mean, some people would. Most of us wouldn't. Like the awfulness that flies out of our mouth when we're talking about someone who just cut us off in traffic. Maybe even worse if they have a Jesus fish on their on their car, you know? We'll say things to that truck that just passed us. But if we were like having coffee together, well, we might think twice before going quite that far. And I think because it's all behind a screen, we feel this uh, this it, this real like embedded sense of like, I could I could say whatever I want. This is Vegas. Yeah. No, what happens here stays here. It doesn't follow me anywhere else, you know. It does remind me of it used to be, you know, live up to your bumper sticker, how you drive. It's kind yeah, of the right. way. Let me read to you how uh, Daniel Darling ends this article. Kindness and civility shouldn't be confused with syrupy niceness that refuses to take a stand against injustice. And for the vulnerable, the Bible's full of prophets who refuse to be silent. Yet we should engage with humility, holding our ideas and our opinions loosely and not taking ourselves too seriously. We should start seeing folks on the other side of the aisle, not as enemies to be vanquished, but as people who may have good ideas. We're not always right about everything all the time. It's our own prejudices and biases, in fact, that lead us to believe the worst about our ideological opponents. Instead, we should do as James instructed, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In an internet age, we might repurpose his words as, be quick to read the whole story, slow to post, and slow to outrage. Mm. That's what we should commit to when we put Jesus in our bio, and it should be evident in the words we post on our timelines. That's Daniel Darling. Uh, at Religion News. You can find that article on our Facebook page. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about a story we introduced yesterday. That's the story of John MacArthur and the opening up of his church. It's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope Real. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about John MacArthur. We're going to hear from Derwin Gray, uh, and then the hope that comes from singing. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back, friends, to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. We really do appreciate it. As a reminder, you can find uh, everything we've talked about on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Also online, you can hear old shows at 1160hope.com. And our podcast, you can find our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, grateful for those of you. Uh, who do that. So yesterday, Ian, you and I started talking about John MacArthur uh, and uh, a lot of the the thoughts, the controversy around the fact that he opened up his church in a hotspot in L.A. County or Orange County around Los Angeles in California. And there were like 3,500 people piled into a sanctuary and uh, very few masks and all of that. And so lots of people with lots of thoughts on this. Uh, But what I thought would be interesting is that John MacArthur went on Fox News last night uh, on the Tucker Carlson show. And so we're going to listen to two minutes in which John MacArthur kind of explains some of his thought process. And I'm going to tell you, this might help some of you understand or it might make some of you angrier about this. Uh, But let's listen to the two minutes of John MacArthur in his own words. Give us a quick overview of why you think you should reopen 
given the coronavirus? Well, first of all and foremost, it's a First Amendment right. This is the United States yes. of America, and, and the government can't intrude in worship. We stand on that amendment. Um, the, the second thing that makes this so sensible is in the state of California, there are 40 million people. 8,500 of them have died with COVID. That's 0.002. So in California, you have a 99.99% chance to survive COVID. So why would you shut down the entire state? And particularly when people are frightened and sometimes terrified that they're going to die, shut down the church where most of the intense relationships in our society exist in the life yes. of a church. It's multi-generational. We've had 21 weeks with no ministry to a thousand little children, to a thousand university students, to junior high students, high school students, senior adults. We've had no funerals, no weddings. I can't go to the hospital. I've had to go on the phone to talk to dying people at the hospital. Uh. And finally, I started preaching in an empty auditorium. I did it two weeks, three weeks, and the people, without us saying anything, started coming back. They didn't buy the narrative. They didn't buy it, and they started coming back. By the way, we're the original protesters. We go back 500 years to the Protestant Reformation. We're, we're still protesting lies and deception for the sake of the truth. So they started coming back, and they kept coming back, and last Sunday, 3,000 of them came back. And they rejoiced, and they hugged each other, and they didn't wear masks, and they sang songs. And um, they understand the reality of it. I haven't had to say anything. We finally put out a document, which you probably read, which affirms why this is right and why it's critical yep. for our society. All righty. And that's John MacArthur last night with Tucker Carlson uh, talking about religious freedom, First Amendment, all sorts of stuff. What did you think when you heard John MacArthur in his own words talk about that on Fox News? I mean, I had already heard the message. So a lot of what he was saying in that interview was, was just sort of a reiteration of what MacArthur had said on Sunday, obviously in a much uh, shorter time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, so as you've seen people on our Facebook page go back and forth with this, um, have you had any change of heart? Do you still think uh, bad move or do you think it's kind of, well, that's what his church is going to do? Where, where are you at with what John MacArthur did this weekend? Well, my, my wife and I were talking about it a little bit yesterday. Like he, he does make some points, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's not as slam dunk, cut and dry as some people online want to make it in either direction, to be honest. This is part of why having a show can be so complicated because it's like a little bit more time than a tweet. But like our nine minutes here is not really yeah. probably enough time to take a, a deep dive. My my big thing, though, is I, I'm still curious why there's uh, not there's no willingness, it seems, to require masks and social distancing. Right. Like they again, it sounds like the best of my knowledge, the state of California still like permits outdoor gatherings like that's that's never been like they'd still be able to do that um but like what i find interesting is that there's like there's different codes that they do submit to like i imagine they follow i don't like food prep codes you know at, per the state's mandate i'm sure they have um fire extinguishers you know in their building like there's things that are that are enforced uh, or at least i mean i don't know a part of the law of the land or the suggestion of the state. But uh, this one in particular, the no masks, no distancing thing to me 
is the part that I probably struggle with the most and, and probably I find the most baffling, to be honest. What do you think about his, see, I hadn't listened to his message. I didn't realize you went and listened to his whole message. Uh, what do you think about his uh, angle of basically saying in a time where there is people are searching for hope, people are struggling, the church is the place for for hope and for relationship, and therefore we've got to be open. What do you think about that line of reasoning? I think he makes a case there, to be honest. I, I think that there we've done stories in the past on this show about um, depression, suicide already being at an all-time high, and, and by some metrics, we'll, we'll continue in that direction. I think the church is the hope of the world, and I don't think that simply viewing things, even worship and teaching online, is quite the same as the incarnate, embodied, gathered ecclesia, the right. gathered church. I think the actual physical gathering is deeply spiritually significant. However, I also do think that one of the ways that we love our neighbors, the way that we live out the great commandment is, is by putting on the back burner, my own rights and privileges, right? This is Philippians two. This is Galatians five. This is saying, I'm going to look to the interest of other people, the most vulnerable, the most people at risk. And, and I think by, you know, MacArthur's message, he, he doesn't seem to think that there's actually that much of a risk based on these numbers. And he compares COVID to a whole bunch of other things uh, that take life and have taken life. So I think maybe in his mind, he just doesn't simply think that it's all that big a risk. Um, so for me, it is, there's a lot to hold in tension because I do believe like the gathered body is deeply significant to what it means to be the church. I don't think it's the same to, right. to simply view things online. And that is a temporary solution that's a band-aid right now so i have to hold that also in tension though with i think it it's still our our christian responsibility to model love by how we respect not just like the the actual physical danger of the virus but also like taking into consideration the fear and anxiety that people feel you know wearing masks being socially distanced i, I think those are things that the the church can be doing that doesn't feel like there's a lot of downside to like they may be required to do a couple more services because of it. Right. But those feel like small sacrifices, I guess, for the sake of being an outpost of love and consideration to their neighbor. Yeah, it is certainly a gray area topic right now. And, and Illinois, I mean, I was just reading uh, today on CNN, Dr. Fauci just came out recently uh, earlier today and said uh, that he thinks that COVID is most spreading now up to the Midwestern states. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. uh, that, that that's kind of the move. And so we're going to have to continue to have these conversations and continue to think about uh, what is freedom and what is this versus what is prudence and what is safety and loving our neighbor. I think this is uh, kind of the world that we live in right now, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so you can find this video up on our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know your thoughts uh, about uh, what John MacArthur had to say on the Tucker Carlson show last night. Well, coming up next, uh, somebody we've had on the show before. I wanted to play a video that I saw on Twitter of him. That's Pastor Derwin Gray talking about the multi-ethnic church. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for spending some time with us on this Thursday or sometime in the future if you listen to the podcast. Ooh. Uh, yeah, they're out there somewhere. Uh, and you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. And a couple weeks ago, uh, three or four, we had uh, Pastor Derwin Gray on the show. Uh, South Carolina? South Carolina. He has a church called Trans Transformation Church. You were about uh, to say Transformers Church, weren't you? 
I was. Because <laughs> he calls his people the Transformers. <laughs> Roll out. And so uh, Derwin uh, writes a lot and, in fact, is soon going to be teaching uh, seminary-level classes on building a multi-ethnic church. You might remember when we had him on, we tied a long conversation about that. Uh, but, Ian, for those who aren't familiar with that or haven't heard from Derwin, we're going to hear from him in a second, but how would you uh, – what's kind of the uh, definition? How would you describe a multi-ethnic church? It's a church with multiple ethnicities, Brian. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> uh, why is a multi-ethnic church uh, important in our day? How, how about we go with that question? Oh, gosh, that's a that's a big question. I think uh, it's massively significant because we're always inclined to see and read the gospel through our own particular lens and experience, which is normal. That's normal for all of us. I think it's a framework or a worldview that we were probably both handed and also cultivated within. And because the Bible speaks repeatedly about the nations, uh, I think his church should reflect that with one caveat. I think sometimes it can be almost exploitative to like try and make our churches diverse just for diversity's sake. Um, I think it's important for churches to reflect like the community they're actually in. Right. So that that yeah. raises a different set of questions in my mind. But I think it's it's just really, really significant. And not only is it significant and important, I think it I think it enriches all of us. Like, I think it's better that when we can hear and celebrate each other's stories and the different experiences we bring to the table and the different way that we understand music and art and food and the gathering, I think. I think everybody wins when when we uh, create space for that. Absolutely. So I want to get back to something you just talked about there. But first, I want us to hear from uh, Derwin Gray. It's about a minute long. Uh, Derwin Gray talking about the multi-ethnic church. Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Think about it. Jesus told Jewish people to go make disciples of Gentiles, the people who enslaved you, the people who suppressed you, the people who abused you. Go tell them about my love and disciple them. That's the power of the gospel, to love your enemies, to befriend your enemies. Building multi-ethnic churches is in the name and for the glory of Jesus. In order to build a multi-ethnic church, you have to live a multi-ethnic life. Who is around your table? Who are your friends? For too long, we've preached a cross that is too small. The big cross of God not only connects us and reconciles us vertically, but it reconciles us horizontally. It means that we begin to love each other as those who are clothed in Christ and belonging to Abraham as a result of God's promise. I need a lot of about what you brought up already, but I found it fascinating when he said building a multi-ethnic church requires a multi-ethnic life. Yeah, uh, I, that's that is uh, that is convicting, I would say. Yeah, I, this article out of the Gospel Coalition talks a lot about mono-ethnic lives and voices, which, again, is easy to do if you're in default mode. Like you're a pastor, Brian, if you had to guess how many of your theology books on your shelf or in your office, whatever, were written by white men? What, what percentage would, would you guess? Uh, it would, I would say it's at least north of 85 to 90%. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's not, you, that's not, there's no vitriolic motive there. Yeah, yeah. It's just sort of like, oh, this is, these are some of the people I was taught in school and some of the people that taught, the people that taught me in school and the books that were available at the conferences I went to, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, 
I, I think there is a, a it is a bit disingenuous, right? To like, oh, I want my church to be multi-ethnic, but I want my life to be mono-ethnic. Uh, in the same way that I'm, you know, only reading people like this, or I really only hang out with people like that. I think, yeah, the integration of the both and is is really important. So you brought up something before about the church does start to reflect the community that you live in. Yeah, uh, you and I are both out here in the suburbs um, that are, you know, there's diversity in where I live and where you live, but not hugely. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, is this something is the multi-ethnic church in your mind, something that can be, uh, you know, uh, strategized and run after, or is it, Hey, we preach the gospel and we welcome who we, who comes in. Like, where are you in that spectrum as to, um, kind of going after this or going, you know, we're just going to preach the gospel and, and whoever God brings us, then we're going to be excited about that. I think it has to be more the former than the latter, because even in that phrase, well, just preach the gospel. Well, even that is interpreted a billion different ways based on how you were raised, where you were raised, what, what version of church or Jesus you were handed. Right. I, we, we all tend to kind of think like, I'm just going to straight show business right down the lane, just preach the gospel. Well, like, yeah, there are people all over the world saying that same sentence that means something very, very different. So I, I do think it's something that needs to be think thought about strategically and also prayerfully, because like I was saying earlier, I do think it is borderline exploitative. If I mean, it's certainly tokenism. Like, well, we're just going to we need to hire X amount of black mm. people, X amount of Asian people. And then we're like, quote unquote, now we're diverse. Like, no, 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 no. no. I think you were saying, you know, both of our areas in the suburbs uh, aren't aren't richly diverse necessarily, but you and I still have the opportunity to be intentional about reading books from yeah. authored by people of color and women in minority. You know what I mean? Like there's there's things that you and I can do, even though your church is still in Downers and mine still in Naperville, and we're you know that fact hasn't changed. I think there's a way to be authentic to where you're actually at and take on some responsibility for like, hey. Um, I don't need to self-flagellate necessarily, but like for the last 15 years, the vast majority of voices I've listened to and have been shaped by and cultivated by have been white men. And I think that there's room for growth there. And I think when we give those opportunities, not just for the person at the pulpit, but for our leaders and our teams and our church as a whole, I think there's, I think there's a lot of growth that we could see there. This last question might seem pretty obvious, but let me ask you anyway, just kind of, I'll tee it up for you. Uh, there might be people out there going, what's the value of a multi-ethnic church? Like, why not, you know, uh, yeah. What is the value of doing the work and trying to see your church become more multi-ethnic? Yeah, I, th I think because uh, there's a number of things. It's, it shows like the heart of God. And I think that when we when we recognize that my my world's not the world, I think that that almost always leads to healthier places. It helps it helps me step out of my own kind of self-involvement a little bit. And it helps us experience the rich diversity of image bearers across the planet and even throughout our city. And I think there's like really practical benefits. I think that we just get a, a richer experience on Sundays, but I think there's, there's deep kingdom impact too, because it, it communicates both subtly and not so subtly that like you know, God cares about the whole world, the whole planet, even with our rich diversity of stories and backgrounds and experiences and heritages. And that to me just only widens the beauty of what it is that God wants to do in the world. And it, it shows, I think in a very practical way that we, we care about uh, racial reconciliation. We care mm -hmm. about um, dismantling bigotry and things that 
exploit and minimalize the marginalized and take advantage of the vulnerable. Like it, it communicates a number of ways. Like we're, we're about the big C church here in our little small C church gathering, you know? Yeah. Uh, So Derwin Gray, Pastor Derwin Gray Gray is a great follow on Twitter. I would encourage you to do so. And we'll put it up at our Facebook pages, a short video uh, about uh, the multi-ethnic church and the power uh, behind it. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about an article out of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, It says this, leadership savvy doesn't make a pastor. We're going to talk about leadership and the pastor coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for being here with us today. As a reminder, uh, all the articles and the videos we've talked about, including the article we're about to do, you can find up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Also on Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk. You can find old shows at 1160hope.com and our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. We really are grateful for those who listen on 1160 and also those of you who listen by the podcast. We are grateful for you. Uh, At the Gospel Coalition, just an article written today that came out today by Chase. I'm going to guess the name, uh, Replogal. Nailed it. uh, Called Leadership Savvy Doesn't Make a Pastor. And before I'm going to have you jump into the article, but before we do, uh, I find this to be, as a pastor, uh, a really important topic because laying my cards on the table. Uh, I love being a pastor, but I'm not sure I'm the greatest leader in the world. And sometimes those get really tied together. Mm. Uh, and so uh, kind of having that conversation, leadership, pastors, uh, how are they tied together? How are they not? So I think this is a very timely article. Why don't you jump into it for us? Why don't I, Brian? Here we go. He writes, I never liked the title pastor. My plan was to practice law and pursue politics. I was fascinated with leadership and all those career tests told me I had a knack for it, but unexpectedly, at a youth summer camp, my junior high year of high school, my junior year of high school, I can read, uh, I felt a distinct call to become a pastor. When I informed my high school uh, debate coaches that I wouldn't be pursuing my college debate scholarships and would instead be attending a small Midwestern Bible college, one pleaded with me, why would you throw away the gifts God has given you? Like her, I imagine pastoral work would be pedestrian and marginal and sacrifice of my potential and plans. Nothing could have been further from the truth. The late 21st century landscape of Christian ministry turned out to be dominated by abundant optimism in the potential of leadership technique. Pastors were dropping their, quote, senior titles for the more relevant, quote, lead pastor label. They Are you senior or lead, by the way, Brian? I'm actually a lead pastor. Oh, right. Okay. They no longer had studies. They had offices or boardrooms responding to this trend. My Bible college rebrands its pastoral theology degree as a church leadership degree. Leadership jargon was everywhere. There were leadership conferences, leadership books, leadership podcasts, leadership magazines, and leadership development pipelines. Everyone seemed to be talking about leadership. For most, our leadership interests were grounded in a genuine desire to be better pastors and build healthier churches. I think that's spot on, by the way. That's a really good point. I really do think it's grounded in a genuine desire. Mine were, being a pastor is hard and often includes responsibilities far outside our original expectations. If learning to be better leaders helps us become better pastors, who wouldn't take up that task? Upon being hired for my first church job, I promptly opened my moleskin journal to the back page and wrote in a box at the top, leadership lessons. I was constantly scribbling down these bits of leadership wisdom, imagining that they were insights I would someday need to lead my church, like leadership is influence, or fail to plan, plan to fail, or leaders are readers, Great leaders are made, not born, 
Everything rises and falls on leadership. Like so many I know, it didn't take long for inspiration to yield to frustration. For all those lessons, I never quite became the leader I'd imagined, and it never seemed to pay back what it promised. I also began to recognize that my leadership ambitions eclipsed my desire to shepherd souls. This is the great cost of our leadership obsession. We're too often left with an anemic interest in what it means to be a pastor. I'll stop there, Brian. You mentioned before we even got into it that you resonate with this idea. How how does that all hit you? It does. It hits me. I think oftentimes the parts where I've struggled as a pastor, as a lead pastor, is uh in this kind of decisive leadership. Like I think I'm gifted to be a shepherd mm. and I enjoy that part. I enjoy teaching. It is kind of like that visionary, that leadership. We're taking that hill that it's just not really how I'm wired. And I've spent a lot of time, like he talks about here uh, in my years as a pastor at our church, kind of lamenting the fact, because, you know, you read the leadership books, you go to the leadership conferences and they're all great. And I think what you pointed out earlier is the truth. Like they're, they're, this focus on leadership is is a good thing, and it's to see people. It's to build the church up. Yeah. Um, but but sometimes um, I, I think the leadership gift has been so put at the top yeah. that uh, that I, I'm not sure. Let's put it this way: I'm not sure it's it's at the top of my giftings. Uh, and sometimes that can make you feel like, "Ooh, I'm not sure that I'm gifted to be a pastor." Mm. When there's a lot of other elements to being a pastor, I would say. Yeah, let me just read a bit more because there's there's a lot of good in here. And I'd, I'd love to, this is on the Facebook page. I'd encourage people to weigh in. He says, pastors will always carry leadership responsibilities, which I totally agree. I'm not against the idea of leadership. We can't escape the organizational necessities of worship and ministry, nor should we try. But we don't become better pastors simply by becoming better leaders. Woo, I bet you someone's going to disagree with that. Pastoral mm. work isn't a mere subset of leadership development. We're called to something far more than influence and technique. Thank God our churches rise and fall on more than our leadership. Thank God we're called to be their pastors, not just their leaders. But how many of us still know the difference? At some point, I stopped recording all those leadership maxims. It wasn't a decisive moment, but I do remember when I fully embraced the simpler title of pastor. We were in the first year of our church plant, and I had just sat down with my wife and son in a Mexican restaurant. My phone rang with a number I didn't recognize. I stepped outside and answered. It was a man from our church, a man who had never called me before. He went on to explain that his younger brother had just received devastating medical news. There was nothing I could do. There was no applicable leadership lesson recorded in that journal. He simply wanted to let me know, and I sensed, share his brokenness with someone. So we prayed together. It wasn't a long conversation. I asked him to keep me up to date, and I promised that I would continue to pray. And before we hung up, he responded simply, thanks, Pastor. It wasn't a title or a reference to my position. It was an affirmation of a calling. Oof, that's good. Mm -hmm. This was exactly what God had called me to do, to take a few minutes away from my chips and salsa, to share in his brokenness, to take that moment before God together in prayer. I felt it many times since, but I've rarely felt it more, felt more like a pastor than that moment. And that's enough for me. I want to get into the rest of this article, but I feel like yeah. if you've not read Eugene Peterson's uh, The Pastor, his memoir, uh, this feels like it was almost drawing from those memoirs because Peterson, by a lot of metrics, was this like mega successful household name. And all throughout his memoirs, like, I just wanted to pastor people. I just wanted yeah. to pastor. You know, it was like so beautiful and rich and, and honest, you know. I totally. And, and sometimes I wonder if the pendulum is going to swing like – um you know, there was this push towards so much of leadership, pastor, as CEO, you know, driving visionary, all this stuff, all of which are important. 
Um, but I think articles like this are kind of saying, hey, did we lose kind of the shepherd, the the kind of uh, doing the, the kind of nitty gritty of taking a call while you're at a Mexican restaurant for a guy and uh, just sitting across with coffee, you know, and that's not going to necessarily grow your church um, numerically, but, but it is kind of the day-to-day calling of a lot of pastors. And, and so I do like, I don't want to, just because I don't feel like I'm a naturally wired leader. I don't want to discount leadership. Like it's important. Yeah. Uh, but I think he does a great job in this article of going, but so is shepherding. And so is, you know, there's other aspects to, to pastoring. He even closes the article by saying, learn to be a better leader, but never at the expense of being a better pastor. I just, I think this is really well written. I think, for someone like me, especially, I, I do resonate with a lot of what he writes here. Yeah, I'm going to go along here in a second, but I want to read some some other parts that he wrote. He says, there's a long tradition of cultivating this unique pastoral identity, a tradition much older than our interest in pastoral leadership. There have been uh, long been pastors and writers who describe the pastoral vocation not as a task to be done, but as a habitus, a pastoral temperament or a habit mm-hmm. to be personally cultivated. The first century world wasn't lacking for images of leadership potential. They had the great King Herod for imagining leadership as organizing and building. They had the Maccabeans for imagining leadership as the spark of revolution. They had a long line of Roman emperors for imagining leadership as political power and strength. But the early church wasn't interested in these models. They had something unique to contribute. They followed a crucified leader and they saw themselves as his humble Shepherds called to care for the flock. Was anyone impressed by their vocational achievements, by the image of pastors praying, preaching, and comforting sheep? We can't afford for the uniqueness of our pastoral vocation to be replaced with the image of a mere organizational leader. When we do, we risk far more than our careers. We risk the power of the gospel, the power that frees us to live out this peculiar way of being in the world. We must rediscover and faithfully cling to that unique vocation to which we've been called. That will preach, man. Absolutely. Chad uh, Replogle, he's the founding pastor of Bent Oak Church. I'd love to have him on to talk more about this, but you can read this article at our Facebook page. Well, coming up next, uh, we are going to end the show by talking a little bit about singing and the hope we get from singing. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. The show is almost done, but we're glad that you were able to join us today. If you missed any of the show, uh, you can find the articles we've talked about at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online at 1160hope.com. And you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Uh, Go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. You can find old shows there. All the interviews Ian did last week while I was away. Uh, be well worth your time to go subscribe to the podcast. Uh, so Glenn Packiam at Christianity Today uh, wrote a, a short article called Science and Scripture Agree, Singing Lifts Our Spirits, Why Christians Erupt in Song Even When Hope Seems Lost. So let me read this uh, and then uh, I'll let you can uh, react to it. Glenn Packiam writes, we hurried through dinner, leaving the dishes for later and huddled around an iPad on the kitchen table. It was time for the Disney sing-along and my musical loving family was not about to miss it. The truth is most days during quarantine, our Amazon Echo devices have been blaring Spotify playlists from Hamilton or High School Musical or any of the Descendants movies. Wow, with Hamilton High School Musical, it's like he's in my home. Uh, (laughs) We love music and dance and our home reflects it, even if there's a battle between our preferences. There's something about a song that lifts our spirits in difficult seasons. 
We've seen clips of Italians standing on their balconies, belting out folk songs and operas, and no doubt we've seen a few parodies too. I'm thinking of a scene from an English street where one well-intentioned neighbor tried leading his neighbors in a rousing pub song from his back garden and was greeted with a rowdy exhortation to be quiet. Our impulse when we are feeling blue is to sing, grumpy neighbors notwithstanding. Sociologist Randall Collins argues that humans are seekers of something he calls emotional energy, which he defines as a feeling of confidence, courage to take action, and boldness in taking initiative. Gaining more emotional energy, according to Collins, is the goal uh, of social interaction. Some researchers argue that what Collins calls emotional energy may primarily represent uh, oxytocin. Oxytocin, there you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, a chemical associated with well-being. When oxytocin levels rise, stress levels decrease, uh, and the person experiencing feelings of love, calmness, trust, motivation to interact socially. There are a few human activities that provoke a rise in oxytocin levels, but most of them involve physical touch, something societies around the world are in short supply of during the COVID-19 crisis. So what do we do without physical touch and social interaction? We sing. According to the same trio of researchers, studies show that after a group singing session, oxytocin increased significantly for singers. Singing makes us feel better. Science, as it turns out, agrees. So let me pause there right now. Uh, I almost said you're Mr. Brain Science on these kinds of things. Uh, Science telling us that chemically uh, singing does something for us. I'm guessing that doesn't surprise you, does it? I think we've talked about this on the show before, actually. One of the things that I think is significant, and I I realize some of this is more controversial in a COVID reality, is that not only does singing have those same sorts of like biochemical, neurological effects, but singing with other people also has implications. uh, It serves as a not only uh, increasing like social bonding, so it increases the uh, the level of like, unity or intimacy you feel with the people who are gathered. That's just that's just chemically related. Um, but also, singing works as a neurological force amplifier, which means that your neuroplasticity is increased. So, like, it's so wonderful when you think about that. We sing before we like listen to a teaching. The singing literally makes your brain more receptive to learning new things. Like it literally makes your brain more ready and willing to take in new information to form new pathways simply by singing. And it doesn't even require that you sing well at all. Like you could sing poorly. You could sing as off tune or off rhythm as you like. And it's, and it still has the same kind of uh, like physiological responses, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, Pakim goes on. He talks about the ancient Hebrews and their songbook, the Psalms. They lift up praise and petitions, laments and sorrows, and calls for God's attention and action. They were not simply singing to feel better as an act of ritual catharsis. Uh, in prayer and in song, they lifted their souls to God, their covenant God, the sole sovereign over creation who had bound himself to them in love. We learned from the ancient Hebrews that the power of singing is not simply in the song, but in who you are singing to. He then talks about uh, Paul and and singing in the Roman prison in Philippi. And uh, he closes this way. Let me finish this off. He says, singing became a signature of the early Christian communities. Several decades after Paul's death, a regional governor named Pliny wrote to Emperor uh, Trajan that Christians 
uh, would gather on a particular day of the week and sing hymns to God, uh, to Christ as to a God. In weekly worship and in dark prison cells, when hearts are buoyant and when hope seems lost, Christians sing. Christians don't sing simply because we're happy. I think that's important. We sing because we are people of hope. In the face of fear, in the shadow of death, in the midst of suffering and pain, we stand tall. We're shaken but not moved, pressed but not crushed, down but never out. Christians are those who believe that because Jesus was raised uh, from the dead, the worst day will not be the last day. So we sing and we welcome you to sing along. That's Glenn Pacquiao. Uh, Kind of the takeaway for us there is I think there has been a real loss to the singing, like you said, watching services on the screen and whatever else. And so I do think one of the takeaways for us here is probably uh, work to find ways to re-engage singing. If you're not going to church on Sunday morning and sitting amongst other people, uh, kind of make sure it's still part of your rhythm. I think singing he lays out here is part of a, a spiritual discipline, if you will. It 100% is. And I, there's more even than what I mentioned, like singing releases stress. It it benefits your heart. It it's actually been shown to improve your memory. Like it's hmm. it literally boosts your immune your immune system. Like there there are so many benefits. And and I've I've wow. sort of uh, unofficially asked people like, hey, you know, with this new kind of digital reality that we're in right now, when you when you watch services online, do you sing in your living room? And most people are like, no, I maybe once, but I don't. Like I I would guess that the vast majority of us aren't actually taking the time to sing we're probably much more watching it like we would a television show which i i feel like could be a real miss like i obviously obviously there's tons of controversy and tons of disagreement about when and how and how much masks or no masks or singing or no singing like i I realize that's all there but at the very least i think and it might feel silly but i i think the spiritual and physiological benefits of even just singing in your living room when you're tuning into whatever whatever church it is that you call home, I, I think that there's real benefits to that. And it will definitely not feel as natural as when you are actually all gathered together. But like, have you found in your own experiences, I know you guys have done some in-person stuff and like, is there singing? Do people sing? Do people miss it? Like, how are you guys, how are you guys navigating all that? I certainly think I found what you were just talking about, that people are not singing when they're just watching online. I've I had some people tell me that, but uh, but yeah, I think once people gather together again with masks, you know, that the, it's uh, it is something I think I know that I've missed. I've I've missed uh, singing with the congregation. And so I think it's important that we find ways. And you brought up embarrassment. You know, who's not embarrassed to sing our kids. <laughs> yeah, so right. Right. We could we could take a cue from them. So this article's up. It's a really good one. It's thought provoking uh, about the science and the scripture behind singing. We're going to put that up at our Facebook page. Well. Uh, we're really glad that you joined us today. I know there's lots of craziness still going on in our world, and hopefully we've provided you with some things to think about, some hope, some laughs along the way. We're going to do this all again tomorrow from 4 until 6. So for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. 